Welcome to the Doughboy Podcast, World War I Centennial News, episode number 130. The Doughboy Podcast, World War I Centennial News, is about what happened 100 years ago during and after the war that changed the world. And it's also about now, how World War I is still present in our daily lives, how it's remembered and discussed, learned and taught, but most importantly... The podcast is about why and how we'll never let the awareness of World War I fall back into the mists of obscurity. So join us as we explore the many facets of World War I, both then and now. On today's show, for a hundred years ago this week, we're going to take you with us in our centennial time machine as we join Ike's Big Road Trip. For Remembering Veterans, a wonderful segment about a veteran's remembrance program, the Veterans History Project, as we're joined by Colonel Karen Lloyd, U.S. Army Retired, the program's director. For Spotlight on the Media, we're going to introduce you to a French documentary film about German World War I biographer Ernst Jünger, as we're joined by the film's producer from Marseille, France, Elsa Minasini. And of course, our quick weekly walk through the headlines of The Dispatch, our newsletter guide to World War I-related stories, news, and updates. All this week on the Doughboy Podcast, World War I Centennial News, brought to you by the U.S. World War I Centennial Commission, the Pritzker Military Museum and Library, the Star Foundation, and the Doughboy Foundation. (laughs) I'm Teo Mayer, the Chief Technologist for the Commission and your host. Welcome to the show. In 1919, there was no functional national road system in America. All major transportation was by rail. So with the emergence of the internal combustion engine-driven technologies like trucks and tanks, it became clear to several commanders that their own homeland was vulnerable for lack of road-based infrastructure. And so our story begins. As a young officer in World War I, George S. Patton was part of the newly formed United States Tank Corps of the AEF. He was commanding the U.S. Tank School in France before being wounded while leading tanks into combat near the end of the war. Meanwhile, stateside, another young officer, a 1915 graduate from West Point named Dwight D. Eisenhower, was put in charge of a unit that trained tank crews in the U.S. During the interwar period between World War I and World War II, Patton and Eisenhower struck up a friendship. As two young, new-style officers, the guys bonded over their shared military enthusiasm, their love of military strategy, but most of all, they were both head over heels into the new battlefield power tech of tanks. With that as a setup, let's jump into our centennial time machine and go back a hundred years to an interesting story that plays out during the aftermath of the war that changed the world. The segment was prepared by podcast researcher and writer David Kramer, and it's called Ike's Big Road Trip. In July of 1919, it would be hard to imagine a world where you might casually take a trip across the nation, let's say from Washington, D.C. to San Francisco. 
You'd never imagine jumping into a reliable air-conditioned machine with adaptive stop-and-go cruise control, a hybrid gas-electric engine, a magical map that guides you to your destination, lets you know where to refuel, suggests the best places to eat along the way, as you listen to music being curated for you on the fly and making the whole trip at a pretty leisurely pace in under five days. Hello, Pacific. But that's not the way it is in 1919, as a young 28-year-old lieutenant colonel named Eisenhower joins a convoy of military vehicles on a test trek from Washington, D.C. to San Francisco, not in a matter of days, but over the course of more than two months. Eisenhower volunteers to accompany the convoy as an observer for his tank division. You see, good roads are a concern for America since the automobile begins to replace the horse. Woodrow Wilson signs an act to create the Bureau of Public Roads in 1916, and Congress allocates $75 million towards building and improving the federal roads. But as you can imagine, with the declaration of war against Germany in April of 1917 and the subsequent focus on the war buildup, not a whole lot gets done with the highway system during World War I. Well, during the war, with the rail system fully occupied, troops do drive new army trucks and material from factories in the Midwest to the eastern ports where goods can be shipped to Europe. In December of 1917, the very first convoy takes three weeks to drive from Toledo, Ohio to Baltimore, Maryland, a trip done routinely 100 years later in a long day's driving. So you can imagine that this cross-national convoy of 1919 is like nothing before it. There are 81 vehicles in the convoy. They include motorcycles, Ambulances, water trucks, mobile machine shops, a blacksmith shop, and even this huge tank-like tract vehicle that proves invaluable in pulling other convoy vehicles out of ditches, mud, and even from a patch of quicksand in Nebraska. This is all handled by 270 men who sometimes drive and sometimes push and even drag their vehicles towards California. Oh, by the way, they bring their own 15-piece band for public relations purposes for when they cross through cities and towns. Now, the Army's got multiple goals for this adventure. Primarily, they want to test both the durability of the equipment and the feasibility of transporting military equipment cross-country in the event that the extremely vulnerable rail system and tracks are destroyed by an enemy. An unanticipated benefit is the goodwill generated in towns large and small across the country. Crowds welcome the soldiers, thanking them for their service, and gather to see some of the equipment that helped win the war. The convoy heads out from Washington, D.C. on July 7, 1919. Forty-six miles later, they reach their first night stop at Frederick, Maryland. This is where Eisenhower joins the convoy. Between Washington, D.C. and the Mississippi River, they have decent roads to follow, mostly the Lincoln Highway, known 100 years later as U.S. 30. But even on these good roads, they experience a lot of breakdowns, clutches, fan belts, overheating, blown-out tires, and other mechanical maladies. But then the fun starts. Beyond the Mississippi, they face mostly dirt roads, which, as you might guess, turn into mud tracks during heavy rains. In the mountains, 
Men stand ready at each side of the vehicle to block the wheels to prevent it from rolling backwards should the vehicle come to a halt on the steep incline. Eisenhower's diary notes the challenges, the welcoming crowds, and even a side of his personality often unseen, Ike the Practical Joker. On the Nebraska Plains, he and another officer shoot a jackrabbit that they spot, but instead of throwing it into the cookpot, they use it a couple of nights later to convince a couple of Eastern civilians of Ike's great shooting abilities as he tags a rabbit at an impossibly long range at dusk. Now, once in California, the roads begin to improve again and daily mileage increases. The soldiers are issued crisp new uniforms on the day before their arrival in San Francisco. A parade meets them east of Oakland and escorts the convoy into San Francisco on September 6, 1919. Now, here are some of the stats from the trip. The trip takes a total of 62 days. The total distance covered is 3,251 miles. More than half the trip, 1,700 miles, is made on dirt roads, wheel paths, mountain trails, desert sands, and alkali flats. The convoy averages a blazing six miles per hour and about 58 miles per day. And a final stat for you. The 81 vehicles with their 270 men are involved in 230 accidents during the trip. This convoy during 1919 will impact Eisenhower's understanding of the military importance of good roads. Then seeing the German autobahns during World War II on which the German army could quickly transport troops and equipment reinforces that impression. The blend of these two experiences leads Eisenhower to push for a system of interstate highways during his presidency. Writing many years later in his memoir titled At Ease, Eisenhower will say, The old convoy had started me thinking about the good two-lane highways, but Germany had made me see the wisdom of broader ribbons across the land. Today, our network of interstate highways is officially named the Dwight D. Eisenhower National System of Interstate and Defense Highways. It receives that official designation in 1990 to honor our 34th president, World War I tank school commander, and early road tripper. We have Dave's research notes and links in the podcast notes for you. And that's our story for 100 years ago this week. So now we can jump back into our Centennial Time Machine, jump into our podcast Inner Time Highway System, and come back to the present. Welcome back. During this part of the podcast, we explore how World War I has been and is being remembered and commemorated in the present. For Remembering Veterans. As our regular listeners are so aware of, the personal accounts, the stories of service of the men and women who fought in World War I are really crucial to our understanding of this nation's shaping experience. This is especially poignant for World War I because there are no longer any living veterans. What we have today are the children of those veterans as the last living testaments of the memory of World War I. Which leads us to our interview with Colonel Karen Lloyd, U.S. Army retired, who's the director of the Veterans History Project at the American Folklife Center for the Library of Congress. Karen, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Tail. How are you doing today? 
I'm doing really well. So, Karen, I'd like to ask you first a little bit about the Veterans History Project. Can you tell us about it, just sort of in an overview? Oh, I'd love to. The Veterans History Project was established in the year 2000. It was actually just started as a five-year program, but we've had such good success. We're going to be celebrating our 20th anniversary in November 2020, so we're very excited about that. It was actually a unanimous bipartisan congressional support piece of legislation, which is not what happens every day. So we're really excited about that. And we're volunteer-based. We work with a network of veterans organizations, universities, secondary schools, scout troops, family members, and members of Congress, because what we want to do is collect and preserve and make accessible those first-person accounts of American veterans so that future generations will hear directly from them and understand what they saw, what they felt, what they heard, what that selfless service was like. We've accumulated over 110,000 collections, but when you think that there's 18 million veterans, we're just scratching the surface. But we're looking for more than just oral histories. We're looking for memoirs and journals and photos and letters and pieces of 2D artwork, all the different ways that the veterans chose to deal with their story. Well, Congress passed a law called the Gold Star Family Voices Act. Could you explain to our listeners what this does and how it changes the Veterans History Project? I certainly can. And from our perspective, it's been a very important adjustment to our initial legislation. And it was passed in November 2016, and we spent about a year figuring out how can we reach out to those immediate family members that lost loved ones during a period of service or war. While we've always accepted posthumous first-person narratives, now we're able to talk to those survivors so that they can be the mouthpiece for their fallen loved ones. And it enables us to share and celebrate those lives of these heroes. We have collected 75 Gold Star Family Voices, but I would suggest to you that there are so many more that are out there, and we don't want to lose any of these voices. It's terribly important that we keep track of them. And again, as I mentioned, we're completely reliant on voluntary participation of folks across the nation choosing to talk with the veterans in their lives and their community. Well, Karen, it's, of course, particularly relevant to our constituency because we only have the children of World War I veterans. And they're now largely in their 80s, so there's a really good reason to focus on this program, because that generation is the last living memory of World War I. Is the project to have any promotional programs or anything reaching out to those folks specifically? Well, we certainly do. And we have over 400 collections from World War I veterans, to including Frank Buckles, who was the last living World War I American doughboy. But we work with retirement homes and hospice centers to make them aware of this opportunity so that they can share so we don't lose these stories. We already receive posthumous submissions from family members who go through the attic and they find that shoebox. And then they call or they'll email us and they'll say, you know, I found this shoebox in the attic and it had diaries and letters and photos. And is this something you might want? Oh, my gosh, I get goosebumps when we get those calls. Recently, we went over to Annapolis, Maryland, and had an opportunity to do an interview with a 91-year-old Gold Star daughter, Anna Zarba. And she talked about her dad, Corporal Francis Bombara. And he was with Delta Battery, 50th Coast Guard Artillery Corps, with the U.S. Army in France. And in addition to her oral history, she shared her father's handwritten letters, photos, and even a letter from the Red Cross letting the family know where he was buried and what flowers they put on the grave. 
just to make sure they understood how personal it was to them. That's great. You know, our listeners are intensely interested in the story of those who served in World War I specifically. How does the program work technically? So this is a two-part question. If they want to tell their ancestors' World War I story and get it on the record, how do they do that? Who do they contact? And the second part of the question is, part of our listenership is interested in the research and exploring those stories. How do they access the archive itself and explore the stories? Oh, I'm so glad you asked. I suggest the first thing they do is go up our website, loc.gov forward slash vets with an S, and that will take you into all of our collections, and you can search through those. You can search by state, you can search by name, you can search by organization, you can search by what branch of service, and then if you don't get results that you like, then I encourage you to go up vohp at loc.gov, which is our official email address. Every one of those emails gets logged in, and we'll know what the disposition is. How is that email answered? And that's when you can say, well, you know, I really want to know a little bit more. And a good example of that was six months ago. We had a researcher come in and was looking for Dear John letters. And our research librarian was able to use their sophisticated software, and we realized that we had over 100 collections that had Dear John letters somewhere in there. So instead of having the researchers go through 110,000 collections, they were able to focus on the little over 100 that had some mention of the area that they were interested in. We can also be reached at 888-371-5848. And again, every one of those calls gets logged in so that we know how the disposition or how it was answered. The other thing is, if you happen to be in the D.C. area, come to the Jefferson Building of the Library of Congress. We have an information center. We have some of our collections up on the wall, but we have so much more, and we can talk to you about the program and how you can get involved. We do workshops at hospices and retirement homes or for different service organizations. So if they want to have a Veterans History Project or history effort going on, we will either provide one of my colleagues or a trained oral historian to come to your location at no cost to you to teach you how to do it. We have something that we created as part of the Centennial Program that was stories of service. And I don't know what the number is, but I know we have several hundred people that submitted stories. We'll reach back out to those people and introduce them to you. Oh my gosh, that would be fabulous. I'm very excited and I would like to suggest you the same thing that we told the National Museum of the American Indian, which is it's great to have a memorial, but if you don't have the voices that go to that memorial it's just a piece of rock. So what we've done with them is to reach out and get, in their case, the Native American histories. And we would love to work with you and be your repository for those collections. We're backed up by a world-class conservation preservation lab. And what that means, here's an example. We got a collection from someone down in past Christian, Mississippi. And the veteran's name is Albert John Carpenter. And he was 19 years old, and he was with the 36th Division of the 142nd Infantry, and he was in the Meuse-Argonne Offensive in France. And his diary starts October, the most eventful month of my life. And he was in the Hindenburg Lines, where he got gassed and mud and bloodshed. He came home. The diary's been in the family. They put it in their basement, where all their special papers to include the family Bible was. And she kept bugging him, you know, we really need to get this to the library for safekeeping. 
and they finally got tired of her, and they said, okay, all right, is that what will make you happy? And about four months later, Hurricane Rita came through, and she emailed us about four months after that, and she said, I am so glad that you have the diary, because now I can bring his great-grandson up to see it. And one of the special things our conservation lab was able to do, because the diary had water damage from when Albert John Carpenter was in service, was put ultraviolet light on that. And so for the first time, everybody got to see what those pages of the diary said. And the family was just taken aback by how well we wanted to take care of this amazing family treasure. And we think of it as a national treasure. And it is. In fact, Literally, your organization is turning it into a national treasure. What a great story. Thank you. It's the best part of my job, being able to talk about these amazing veterans. And if we didn't collect these stories, they would be lost to history. And that's a part that people don't always think about. When you look at movies and books or documentaries that use war as a backdrop, it's not the wars. It's those personal counts, as you said at the beginning that really are the touchstone and what draws in. And what I'm so proud of is that we get researchers that come here to the Veterans History Project at the Library of Congress to culture these stories. But the stories in our archives, the veterans and their families keep their copyrights so that they're not lost. And they have some control over their story. And not every archive or repository does it that way. So I'm particularly proud. Our veterans have given so much I feel like it's the least we can do. Well, Karen, your passion for all of this is really obvious and very clear. Thank you for the work that you're doing. Oh, our pleasure. And please let us know what we can do to be helpful. Colonel Karen Lloyd, U.S. Army retired, is the director of the Veterans History Project at the American Folklife Center for the Library of Congress. The program has recently been expanded to include the Gold Star Families, which opens the project to the children and families of those who served. We have links for you in the podcast notes for where to connect with this great program. For our spotlight on the media segment, let's talk a moment about point of view. We've spent the last 130 weeks exploring the many facets of the war that changed the world. Understandably, we focused and looked at all this through the prism of an American point of view. But of course, for most people of the world, World War I was a powerful and profound experience. It was experienced, viewed, and understood from the perspective of that person, their national orientation, and their culture. Our next guest crosses a number of these bridges in a very interesting way. Elsa Minasini studied and received a master's degree in political science in France, with her thesis being on the German film called Hitler, A Film of Germany. Following on her interests in political science and media, she began to work on a documentary series for a French production company called KS Vision. Finally, deciding to partner up with Elizabeth Poslowski, they created a production company of their own called Baldander's Films in Marseille, France. They recently released an amazing documentary film about German World War I soldier Ernst Jünger and the author of the biographical account Storm of Steel. Elsa, welcome to the podcast. Yes, and thank you really much for your invitation. I'm really glad to be with you from Marseille. The Red and the Gray. Could you briefly tell our listeners what the film is and what it's about? Yes, this film, The Red and the Gray, is a film by François Lagarde. 
It's an adaptation of a famous war story, which was written from the German writer and officer Ernst Junger. This text was entitled Storm of Steel. And this book was published in 1920, when Junger was really young, he was in his 20s. And in this book, he recounts his own experience of the war on the front, and he described in great details the living conditions of the German soldier in France. And maybe as you know, and as the audience know, Ernst Junger with this book became really famous. He became a major intellectual figure of that time. So the film by François Lagarde is based on the book. The book provides the scenario of the film, and uh, a large part of the text is read in French by a German actor, which is completely bilingual. And the film is also composed of 3,000 photos of mostly anonymous German soldiers of the First World War, and they were non-professional photographers. So François Lagarde has collected those photos for more than 20 years, and those photos are exactly taken at the time and place where Junger was. So it's an amazing work, a life work. And what is amazing is what Junger described in this book is before our eyes. So it's very precious. It's very rare in cinema, I think. The director, François Lagarde, was the driving force in bringing this film together. So let's begin with exploring him for a moment. Can you tell us a little bit about him and maybe why you think he was so passionate about this particular project? François read Storm of Steel when he was very young. He was a teenager and he has found the book in the library of his father. So when he read the book for the first time, he had a really emotional and several shock. In fact, he was very marked by the Second World War because he lived in Le Havre. And in France, in this city, still deeply marked by the World War II bombings. So he was really impressed by this book because Junger also managed to describe the total destruction that this war was with a really great precision and accuracy of the detail and the great objectivity. François often said that the great precision of this book was really like a photographer's job. He said that Junger's eyes were multiple, like focal length of the camera. So François was very receptive to the photographic precision of the text because he was himself a photographer. And all his life, he photographed a lot of writers and artists. Was this François Lagarde's last film? No, it was not, because he spent more than 20 years, maybe 30 years, making this film. At the same time, he had other projects. And the last film he was working on was a film about a Russian philosopher whose name is Alexander Kozhev. François died in 2017 before being able to finish this film. So this film about Alexander Kozhev is still in preparation. We are still working on it. Well, let me shift the focus to your film company. How did your film company get involved with the project? At the beginning and during more than 20 years, it was only François Lagarde's project. He has dreamed, he has prepared, and he has directed his film himself. He did everything himself. And we were friends, François and me, even if we had a big age difference, we were really friends and I held him in great esteem because of his great gentleness and his incredible work. But François has been sick for several years and before leaving this world, he asked me, with my production company to be in charge of the post-production of his film as well as the production of the German vision. So it was a wonderful gift and of course I have accepted because we were friends but also because I was really convinced, even if the film was not finished, I was convinced of his high quality. But at the time when he died, fortunately less than half of the film was yet edited and the film lasts three hours and 30 minutes. 
it was really difficult to get the responsibility to finish by ourselves this film. But fortunately, we worked with his ex-wife, who is also a film director, and she continued editing the film uh, in its French and German version. And we get some financial support from the French Centennial Mission. Christine Baudillon, his ex-wife, did a great editing work. And the first time I discovered the finished film, I had to say a big shock, a big cinematic and emotional shock. I was really impressed. We managed to release the film in France last October, and it was screened during more than three months, and the press was really good. So, and right now, it has been shown one time in Germany. Let me explore the national perspective for a moment. You know, Storm of Steel and Ernst Jünger, at least here in this country, stands out because there are so few personal accounts of World War I that give us the German point of view, or at least there are almost none that have been translated. And this made me wonder, what drove a French director and a French group to want to tell the story of the German experience in World War I? Francois wanted to show a different side of the war because the one side we know in France is uh, through French propaganda. And it was really important for him to show the point of view of the Germans because they are the vanquished and not the winners of that war. So we don't know in France the images of the German soldier of the First World War. But in fact, these images exist because there are thousands of German soldiers, mostly anonymous, who have photographed this war. French soldiers were not allowed to make unofficial photos during this war, but it was not the case for the German. And on the contrary, one in five German soldiers had a camera. So almost all of these photos have never been seen before in France. So Francois wanted to make this film because he wanted to tell the story of the First World War seen by the vanquished. And he wanted to do that without bitterness, without heroism. He also wanted to pay homage to those anonymous photographers who had uh, lost their lives. It's a wonderful project. Where can people see it? And is there a subtitled or a translated version for English-speaking audiences? There is a French version and a German version. The German version is not subtitled because there are too many photographs, so it's impossible to listen to the text and to watch the photographs. We will lose details if we do that. So it's translated and it's the same actor, a German actor, who read the text in German. But unfortunately, we don't have yet an English version of the film. It's really too bad. We would like very much to have one, but right now we don't have the funding for that. I don't think it will be really expensive, but we can't do that for the moment. As you worked on the project, is there something that stands out for you especially surprising that you learned or discovered? I discovered that only with a simple black and white photographs and a text read by an actor, we could manage to make an extraordinary film of three hours and 30 minutes. We are completely immersed in a bygone era, and we really get to see the, this lost world. Today, we, most of the documentaries about the war made with archives are using colorization or sound effects or musicalization. It's not the case of this film. So working on this film, I realized that all that is not necessary. Without all this, the films managed to give us a really rare proximity with soldiers who lived in a distant past of 100 years ago. Where can people see the film? In France, the film will still be screened in the cinema uh, until December. In Germany, we are going to make a big work because it's not so easy with younger in their memory. But for the moment, except in, in Germany and in France, it's quite impossible due to the fact that we don't have an English version. 
My last question to you, Elsa, is what should our listeners remember about Ernst Younger and the story that he tells? It's not so easy for us to screen the film in Germany because it's still very controversial in Germany. Ernst Junger is accused of having praised the war. He's also accused of having praised the merits of the Man of Steel. And a lot of people still say today that he has influenced the Nazi ideology. And that's why, for the moment, the German audience maybe are not so ready to watch this film. But for me, it's very important to say that in Storm of Steel, Junger does not make the apology of the bloody technical modernity and he does not praise Man of Steel. On the contrary, if we are really attentive to the text, we will realize that there is no, I would say, no pathos or no hateful words in Junger's story. He really remains impartial, is extremely honest and humanist also. What he explains in his book to us is the historical break that this conflict represents and what he describes is a new world, which is the world of the destructive technical modernity. So I think this text and also the film with the images in mirror, with the photographs, show that this war was a real madness, a total destruction. But Junger and the film is absolutely not complacent. Elsa, thank you for joining us. And also, thank you for releasing this really interesting film about a very interesting time and an interesting perspective. Thank you very much. And I really hope that this film could be one day uh, be screened in the U.S. Thank you, Elsa. Thanks a lot. Bye, Tao. Elsa Minasini, partner in the French film company Baldander's Films, who recently released the Ernst Younger documentary, The Red and the Gray. We have links for you in the podcast notes to learn more. And that brings us to Articles and Posts, where we select stories you'll find in our weekly newsletter, The Dispatch. The Dispatch points to online articles with summary paragraphs and links providing a rich resource to World War I news and activities. Our first story headline, Arkansas's Great War Letter Project. Reading such letters makes the events of the past real. Michael Polston has a remarkable story to tell. Curator of the History Museum in Central Arkansas, he saw a rare opportunity to do something unique to mark the World War I centennial period. Something that would be immediate, accessible, relevant, and that would have value that would last long into the future. The project was a letters project. What the Arkansas Historical Association called it was one of the most valuable of the efforts marking the centennial. How World War I Transformed Economic Warfare Though World War I has officially ended a hundred years ago with the signing of the Treaty of Versailles, in its overwhelming influence on economic sanctions since 1919, the Allied blockade never really stopped. While it's the narrative of destruction and change from the bloodbath of Somme to the triumph of Vladimir Lenin in Russia that have captured the public imagination about the war, the way the war transformed economic warfare should also be seen as one of its central legacies, one that continues to shape international relations to today. Vermont writer Sharon Lakey remembers, quote, a story in North Danville that has held a warm spot in my heart for many years. Ben Clifford, an old country poet, walked the back roads of North Danville and left his handwritten poems in neighbors' mailboxes, unquote. 
the preparation for the upcoming July 4th celebration in North Danville brought to light some undiscovered writings by Clifford on World War I. The next headline. Historian's 10-year quest for World War I New York soldier's grave ends in success. We previously chronicled in the dispatch the story of Terry Krautwurst, who devoted 10 years of his life documenting the men and women of Genesee County, New York, who served in World War I. But there was a nagging loose end to the amazing historical project, one that Krautwurst had almost given up on solving. But he did. Minnesota family donates World War I-era artifacts to County Museum. Those who served in World War I had a tendency not to talk too much about that experience. If they did, it was typically much later in life. And that was the case with Ken McKay, who served his country in World War I as a member of Company L, Redwood Falls, Minnesota National Guard Unit. Access the full-length version of all these amazing stories and more through the summary paragraphs and links that you'll get in our weekly dispatch newsletter. It's our short and easy guide to lots of World War I news and information. Subscribe to this wonderful free weekly guide at www.cc.org forward slash subscribe, all lowercase, or just follow the link in the podcast notes. And that wraps up episode number 130 of the Doughboy Podcast, World War I Centennial News. Thank you for listening. We want to thank our great guests, crew, and supporters, including Colonel Karen Lloyd, U.S. Army retired and director of the Veterans History Project, Elsa Minasini, documentary film producer from Marseille, France. Thanks to Mac Nelson and Tim Crow, our interview editing team, and this week, we say goodbye to line producer Katz Laszlo, who's been with the show since January of this year. Katz has returned to our native Amsterdam, where she's producing radio and audio shows. A shout out to you from all of us, Katz. We wish you wonderful success in what's sure to be a long and rising career in radio and podcast production. With that, we also welcome Juliette Kowal, who's been working with Katz over the past few weeks and takes the line producer reins starting with next week's show. We also want to thank Dave Kramer for his special feature writing and JL Michaud for research and web support. And I'm Teo Mayer, your producer and host. The U.S. World War I Centennial Commission was created by Congress to honor, commemorate, and educate about World War I. Their programs have been to inspire a national conversation and awareness about World War I. They've brought the lessons of 100 years ago to today's educators, their classrooms, and the public. They've helped to restore World War I memorials in communities of all sizes across the country. And yet to be completed, the Commission will build America's National World War I Memorial in Washington, D.C. We want to say thank you to the Commission's founding sponsor, the Pritzker Military Museum and Library, as well as our other show sponsors, the Star Foundation and the Doughboy Foundation. The Doughboy Podcast, World War I Centennial News, and a full transcript of the show can be found on our website at www.cc.org forward slash CN. That's Charlie Nancy. You'll find the Doughboy Podcast in all the places that you get your podcasts, even on YouTube, asking Siri, or using your smart speaker by saying, play WW1 Centennial News Podcast. The Commission's Twitter and Instagram handles are both at WW1CC and we're on Facebook at WW1Centennial. Thank you for joining us. And don't forget, 
You can help keep the story alive for America by contributing to the memorial, which will stand to tell the story for generations to come. Just text the letters WWI or WW1 to the phone number 91999 and make a contribution of any size. Thank you for listening. So long.